one. I realize that for some, we're crawling along and for others, we're not. But hopefully, each Sunday, we are sharing what the Holy Spirit has given to share. And so, it looks like we're just never going to get there. We're never going to get there. Well, we have to remember this. When God builds a building, He does it in a way that it stands forever. And as a consequence of that, He's not in a hurry. How many of us have ever been upset with God because He wasn't in a hurry to do something that we needed Him to do? Come on. Yes. The thing about impatience is us. We are the problem with that. So this morning we're continuing to talk and we'll continue to talk about this until the Lord finishes the benefits and the blessings to us secondarily of Christ's ascension. Let's remember this as in everything about our faith, everything about our life in Christ, everything about our life in Christ. We are secondarily the benefactors. God is and always has been and always will be, what? The primary benefactor in any and every aspect of the incarnation. Do we get that? And so this morning we prayed about the church. Wonderful. But let's not see the church primarily as people and about us. It's about God. Correct? Because how do we know God? Through the church. How do we come to understand how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to one another? How do we know that? Through our relationships. How do we understand functioningly what God's love is in our lives? Through as we love one another. So this whole enterprise of God's work beginning in Genesis 1-1 and never culminating, but at least as far as the book is written, it culminates in Revelation 22. It's all from God, for God, and about God. And anything and everything about our lives individually and corporately is from God, is for God, and is about God. Amen? So this morning we continue with this. And we said that the, res- the ascension is as essential to our salvation as is the death and resurrection of Christ. And we need to be not careful, but I think we need to be more understanding that we don't get stuck, and I really mean that, stuck in celebrating Christmas, the great event, the birth of Jesus, or celebrating communion, the meal before Jesus is crucified, or the crucifixion itself as 
We don't get stuck there. We don't get stuck on the third day, the resurrection day. These are the continuing work of God. Each work, as miraculous and as grace-defining and revealing and applying as every other work of God. So we simply cannot say biblically accurately that one aspect of the work of God from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end is the most important aspect. It is all comprehensively one work which culminates but at any point when any aspect no matter how quote insignificant it seems to us is not manifested the entire work is undone. Correct? So let's make sure we see the ascension in its proper place. So we've already talked about the essentialness of the ascension of Christ. So in the ascension of the Son of Man to the throne of God, God implements His eternal plan in His people to be consummated with the visible return of Christ at the end of the age when He establishes the forever new heaven and new earth. Correct? That's where we're going. That will be the consummation of it. So the ascension of Christ really answers the question of Psalm 24, and I know I have some of it in your Bible, but how many of us have heard this? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in His holy place? How many have heard that psalm? You see, the cry of humanity from Genesis 3-6 on, why do I say 3-6? And he ate. Remember Adam. That's the fall. And he ate. That's the fall. That's where it is. Genesis 3-6, right at the end of the verse. The cry of humanity from the beginning at that point, this is an interloper. The cry of humanity has always been, how can we be made fit for the presence of God? How can an unrighteous people be made fit to stand before this God without being and have fellowship with this God of absolute righteousness? So you'll see this kind of question throughout the Old Testament, and it's so clearly stated in Psalm 24. Who, who, who shall ascend? You see the word ascend? Do you see it? Do you hear the word ascend? Who shall what? Ascend unto the hill of the Lord. Now, remember when we did Genesis study a while back, hills, biblically speaking, as they relate to God's work, are the places where God is manifested as exalted. Did you get what I said? Hills are the places when they relate to God's work and the presence of God are the places where God is manifested as exalted. And so Jerusalem is 
going up to Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because the temple is in Jerusalem, and God is manifested in His glory in the temple as the exalted God of glory. Amen? So that's what the hill means. That's not, who's going to climb this hill for us? And so, who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand, stand as accepted, as accepted? Who shall stand in His holy place? What's the answer? Well, look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Now, how many of us in and of ourselves meet that definition? Who of us here has a pure heart? Absolutely pure, without any taint of sin or pollution. Raise your hand if you do. Intrinsically, in us as ourselves. So that wipes us out. So that's, there's an impossible answer. Do you see this? It's an impossible answer. Flo, you haven't helped me with this answer. Who shall ascend to the presence of God? Only the person who is perfect in every aspect of his being. What kind of an answer is that? But that's what the question of the Old Testament poses over and over and over and over and over again. And yet in the midst of the question, God is answering it through the types and the shadows of Him who is to come, who is the only man in Himself intrinsically and as a result of His perfection of obedience is the only one Himself who has never sworn deceitfully or and who has what? A pure heart. See, the answer is only one man. However, the question is answered only by the Son of God as He is joined Himself to our humanity to become the Son of Man. That union that can never be broken. Only the Son of God, only the Son of Man, whose perfect obedience qualified Him to ascend to the hill of the Lord into the presence of God. I don't want to take all day with this, but I do, I just feel compelled. Jesus, who is the Son of Man, and remember, the Son of God has taken to Himself a human body and soul, so that in this man dwells the divine nature and the human nature. Both dwell in Him, not confused. In other words, we're not assimilating one another. We're not kind of becoming one another. Both are identical, separate natures. So that the Son of God experiences everything of our humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth obeys completely and absolutely as a man so that he earns the right. He is qualified to become the Messiah and to be given a people 
He has risen from the dead because he qualified to be righteous. He earned his righteousness by his obedience. Do we see that? Do you understand that? We say that no person can earn their salvation, and he's right. But he is the one who earns our salvation. So we are, in a way, if you would, saved by works. But whose works? The works of another man, not by our own. That's why Paul insists, not by your own works. He doesn't say you're not saved by anything or any works, but by your own works. So he's qualified. He's the only one who's qualified to meet the definition of Psalm 24.4. However, so in this, Christ fulfilled the eternal purpose of God, that his people would dwell with him in his presence forever. This means that we are made fit. We are made fit to enter God's presence only as we enter through Christ, who is the door into God's presence. Remember in John 10.7, what does Jesus say? I am the door to the what? sheepfold. Remember that? I am the door. And so, if anyone comes in through any other way, what does he say? He is a what? A thief and a robber. Remember that? I am the door. And so, our ability to enter into the presence of God is through one man who is the door. So, this means that as Christ has become qualified to become the door because He is our sinless substitute, now, did I give you a bunch of, did, do you have a bunch of scriptures there? Just a bunch of scriptures that you may want to look up to look up the understanding of sinless substitute. What does that mean? That he is a man without sin who is without sin and has obeyed obediently and perfectly, rather, on our behalf for us doing what we could not do. So he is our substitute. He obeys as our substitute, and then he pays as our substitute, and he dies as our substitute, and he rises as our substitute, and he ascends as our substitute. Correct? Because we are represented in him because of his humanity. So, as we were represented in Adam when Adam fell because all humanity was collected in Adam in the natural sense, so God has ordained that all of His people would be collected into Jesus in a spiritual sense. This is why being born again is so necessary, so that we can be taken out of our natural position in Adam as to our old nature being crucified at the cross with Christ. And the Holy Spirit then brings us and gives to us a new nature, the nature of this man who is in the heavens ruling and reigning on our behalf. This is why we need to be born again. As a result, 1 John 3, 8, we are made fit for the presence of God. Remember what 1 John 3, 8, A, I mean B, I should have put B, B there. What is 1 John 3, 8, the second half of 1 John 3, 8? Actually, we should probably quote the whole thing, but it's talking about fellowship. What does 1 John 3, the last part of it, say? 3, 8. For the blood of Jesus, God's Son, does what? Cleanses us from all sin. So, at the cross, two things are done. Our sins are forgiven, 
purgation, P-U-R-G-A-T-I-O-N, you know, to purge, purgation. Sins are forgiven at the cross, purgation. And purification, we are cleansed from the impurity of the sin. Now, we won't go into that, but if you look at Leviticus 16, you'll see that those two acts of God are necessary. The temple itself, the holy place, must be cleansed with the blood of the animals, and the high priest himself must be cleansed of sin, so we need both. Purgation and purification, both of those happen at the cross. Now, in heaven, Christ is the open door into God's presence, having qualified us as the good shepherd. Remember in John 7, uh, 10, 10, 11, right? Yeah. Remember in John 10, 11, Jesus says what? I, in fact, he re repeats it. What does he say? I am the what? The good shepherd. So just for a moment, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the good shepherd? Well, you know, he has sheep and he does things with sheep and he whatever. Well, it means so much more than that. But very quickly, without going into any detail, Jesus, when he announces and proclaims and states that he is a good shepherd. First of all, we are reminded of what chapter in Ezekiel when the Lord says, I myself will shepherd my people on a dark and gloomy day. I myself will shepherd my people. What chapter is that in Ezekiel? Does someone remember? 34. Andy got it. Now, if we're wrong, Andy... We're in trouble. Someone's going to look that up, I'm sure. Where's Bertus? Bertus is our answer man in here. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, what he's saying is, I am going to shepherd my people out of darkness into light by myself being the light that they may follow. And I'm going to shepherd my people from bondage into freedom through fulfilling a triad of roles. You know what the word triad means? What does it mean? Three, I am going to shepherd my people. A shepherd is one who fulfills his role in a triad of roles. That's why Jesus calls himself the shepherd. And so we don't think this way when we look at the word shepherd, but we need to think this way because everything, remember what I said, about the Scriptures, our lives, is about whom? God, and what is the essentialness of God that He desires to fulfill in us and to and manifest in us? His triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember that? That's the essential glory of God and the essential purpose of God in everything that He does, to manifest who He is. And so being the shepherd, Jesus is fulfilling the role of king. How does He fulfill the role of king as a shepherd? Because the shepherd does what? He what? Do you have it in your notes? Is it in your notes? The shepherd does what? He leads his people. That's the role of kingship, isn't it? Secondly, he fulfills the role of the prophet. What is a prophet? What does he do in his prophetic ministry as the shepherd who is a prophet? He what? He instructs us. He brings to us the Word of God. The prophet, the Word of God is spoken. The Word of God is among us. He instructs His sheep. He gives them the Word of God. And He fulfills it 
in the role of priest. How does he do that as the priest? He lays down his life for his sheep. He is the one who presents himself. I didn't put this in your notes. He presents himself to God as the one who will make the sacrifice, present it, and himself being the very sacrifice. So we see, and do you remember when we talked about Christ as prophet, priest, and king a while back, a long series? Do you remember that? Some of you remember that teaching we did in here? These three distinctive roles. And so in each of these roles, Jesus represents the distinct but not separate roles of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So why does Jesus fulfill and why must Jesus fulfill these three roles? He must fulfill each role perfectly. Each one is distinct, but they're not separate. Because in the role of king is the role of prophet, and in the role is the role of priest. In the role of prophet, there is the role of king, and there is the role of priest. In the role of priest, there is the role of prophet, and there is the role of what? King. You see how intricately they are in intermeshed. They are united. Really, we could say one role. And what is the significance of this? Each of these roles clearly demonstrates the role of the father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as our Messiah, our Redeemer, and he must fulfill the role of the Father. He must fulfill the role of the Son, and he must fulfill the role of the Holy Spirit. Do we see that? Remember, we've talked about that before. And so in this triad of roles, Jesus accomplishes our salvation. Why do I want to emphasize this? And I hope it's the Holy Spirit. Because we need to have our understanding of this gospel of the glory of God expanded beyond Jesus saves me by the blood, and that's all I know. We need to have this glorious gospel, this eternal magnificence, open a little more and gradually every day so that we are overcome by this majesty of majesties and are overwhelmed with his greatness and glory so that we fall at his feet and worship and are more drawn out of the world and out of the affections of our flesh into greater affection for him. Amen? So let's not have a small view of our salvation. But hopefully the Holy Spirit is expanding it. And so I quoted there, I didn't quote, but I think I have listed there, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Do you see that? So here are the three roles. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The Father's role is in verses what? 3 to what? 6. The Son's role is, what's after 6? Seven to what? Twelve. And the Holy Spirit's role is in verses 13 and 14. So you see that. So when Paul says, blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. How is that possible? Because you see, Jesus has fulfilled the role of each person of the Trinity as to our redemption. Correct? Every role. And now, why am I emphasizing this? Because in the ascension, that which Jesus fulfilled, now listen to me, in the ascension, that which Jesus fulfilled in his earthly humiliation and weakness, he humbled himself. Philippians 2.8. In the ascension, that which Jesus accomplished in his humbleness or humiliation and weakness, the weakness of humanity, he now accomplishes through the same triad of roles in victory and in power. Okay? He now accomplishes, or rather, wrong word, he applies his accomplished work during his earthly ministry as the humbled and as to his humanity weak Messiah through these triad of roles. He now accomplishes and implements through the same triad roles, but in victory or from the perspective of victory, having gained the victory, applies the victory, and he does it in power. Do we see that? That if we don't say it this way, when we start talking about Christ is our king and prophet and priest in heaven, we will not correctly connect it or even connect it at all to the same necessity that he had to be, that had to be accomplished in his earthly ministry. All right? Are you with me on this? I want you to understand why sometimes we plow the field and go back and restitch and stitch again and smaller and smaller because we're trying to, we're trying to close all the little loopholes and have a garment here that is worth wearing in a greater way. Therefore, you see, our redemption <clears throat> is a Trinitarian work of the one being of God. Now, why did I put Deuteronomy 6.4 there? <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. He is one in his being and three in his persons. The word one, echad, E-C-H-A-D, echad, <laughs> means either one and only or it means one in plurality. One class. How many classes is this? One. How many people in here? Sixty. But it's only one class. But it's a collection of folks as one. Do we see it? God is the same way, isn't he? Except we are not obviously of the same unity and so on. Where am I in my notes? Here I am. Now, so everything is Trinitarian. 
And I've said these things many times, but I don't want you to forget. Everything about the work of God is what? Trinitarian. Everything about the work of God is what? Trinitarian. So why, this morning when we pray for the church, why must it be insisted upon that we see the church primarily not as a group of people and God's people and all that, but we see the church as the revelation of the Trinitarian oneness of, of the one being of God, correct? That's what the church is, the living, organic revelation and activity of this God who is forever Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is, correct? That's what we're all about. And from that, everything begins to flow, and everything is to be outworked as a result of that to prove it, to manifest it, to mature it, to declare God's glory. So now Christ ascends to heaven as our exalted shepherd. Now we could say high priest or lumber, but we, you know, we just said shepherd this morning. As our exalted shepherd to implement his finished earthly work. Redemption of our souls is accomplished at the cross. Finished. It is accepted by God as accomplished in the resurrection. Finished. Cannot do anything else. It is now to be applied by God through the exaltation of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Have to have it all. You have to have it all. So now he ascends to heaven, our exalted shepherd, to implement his finished work in each of us as he does so through his triad roles of king and prophet and priest. We have a few more things to say. When Jesus ascends into the heavens, he sits on the throne of God. And you remember that that was promised to David. You remember in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, God promises David that his son shall be, have a throne and he, he will have a throne and his kingdom will be forever. Do you remember that? That Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 13 and 7, 13 and 14. And how is it fulfilled at least in humanity? It's fulfilled when Solomon in 2, I've forgotten the verse, 2 Samuel, what is it? Yeah, here it is, 29, 23. It says this, and Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh. Now, this is an earthly throne. He's the king of Israel. He's just sitting in that chair over there in the temple or over there, wherever it is. But God, you see, is showing that as Solomon sits on the throne and he calls it of the Lord, Solomon ascends and is exalted, if you would, beyond a mere human as to the foreshadowing of the Son of God who will be exalted, who himself sits on the throne of God in the heavens forever. So Solomon's a type of that. Jesus, remember, said, there's a greater than Solomon among you. Remember he said that in Luke? There's a greater than Solomon. And so this is finished. Now, so we've already spoken about the absolute necessity for the Son of God to assume our humanity in order to redeem us. 
but it is as necessary for Christ as to his humanity to implement the accomplished work of the cross as displayed in the resurrection. You see, in the ascension, Jesus becomes the man of heaven. And I won't read the scripture. Well, let me read it. In his ascension, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ himself, the Son of God in union with our humanity forever, the Son of God in union with our humanity forever in the person of Jesus, is now the man of heaven. Or as I read years ago, and I occasionally haven't done it lately, call him the heavenly man. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49. Listen to what Paul says. The first man, who was the first man? Adam was from the earth, natural, the earth, a man of dust. The second man, who is the second man? Jesus, the Christ, is from heaven. <clears throat> As was the man of dust, so also we are those who are of dust. So our natural constitution is dust. From dust we came and to dust we're going to go. And as the man of heaven, so also we are those who are of the heaven. We have been reconstituted. It's called born again. Now the life of the Son of God has been given to us as God's gift through the Holy Spirit. And we now have the very nature of the Lord Jesus in us. Just as we, verse 49, have, been, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So you see the emphasis on what word there? What word has been repeated? No, no. What word has been repeated in those verses? Man. Man. Flesh. Humanity. Flesh. Flesh. And that's important when we talk about well, we'll get to that later on. In his ascension, Christ Jesus now sits on the throne of God in fulfillment of God's mandate to Adam. Remember Genesis 1, 26, let us make man after our own image according to our likeness. And then in verse 28, what does he tell Adam? Adam, here's how you're going to be revealing me, image. This is how you're going to reveal me. You're going to reveal me through a triad of roles. You're going to reveal me as Father. You're going to reveal me as Son. You're going to reveal me as Holy Spirit. And so these are the mandates. Remember, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and rule. You remember that? That's in verse 28, I think. So that's the mandate that God gives to Adam, to be his representative on earth who fulfills the triad of roles and therefore displays the reality and the fellowship of the three persons of God. Again, let me say it one more time. Lest you forget, Lester, it's all about God. Do we see that? We must bring our teaching and our understanding of the Word of God and everything we do as believers, we must always bring it back to God Himself. Steve, it's all about God, isn't it? It's all about God. Do we see that? Gordon, do we see that? It's all about God. So now Jesus as God gave the first Adam kingly authority to subdue and to take dominion over the earth, he now gives Jesus, the second Adam, kingly authority to rule over his creation. And I didn't talk about the priestly and the prophetic authority, but there are all three there. Now, now Jesus will exercise all authority, what? To do what? 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. For what purpose? What are you going to do with this authority, Jesus? What is God's reason for giving Jesus all authority? To implement God's eternal purpose for His people. Having been purchased at the cross, now all authority is given to Jesus not only to display the glory of God in this risen divine man, but then to implement, authority to implement, to put into reality, to create a people who will also be not divine in themselves, but who will be made partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4. Now, we, we, we have a picture of this in Genesis. Listen to this. Remember, what's his name? Joseph. Remember the one who was sold into slavery and so on, and he went to Potiphar's house, and the woman lied about him. He was cast into prison for 17 years, 17 years. Joseph is in prison. Then he gets this dream about the cows and the sheep and the skinny and the fat. you remember that? Seven years of what? Abundance and seven years of famine. And so they finally take him to the Pharaoh and say, look, we have a man here. You need to hear this man because he can tell you what your dream was all about. And so he tells the Pharaoh, here's what's happening. And the Pharaoh said, well, what are we going to do? And, and, and Joseph, being, being anointed with the wisdom of God, said, here's what you do. For seven years you do this, 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 and then you do that. And Pharaoh said, oh, wow, listen to this man. As a consequence, here's what happens. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, you shall be, you shall be over. You shall rule my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now, listen Listen to it in relation to the ascension of Jesus. Don't listen to it just as a story in the Old Testament that ends of its own. It is about Christ. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And in the throne, who is greater than the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is greater? Who is greater? Come on, come on. The Father. Why? In roles, in roles as to his role, God the Father is greater than Christ as to his role. See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. You see that? The robe of righteousness, the gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And he called out before them, bow the knee, bow the knee. Remember Philippians 2, 9 through 11? And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt, over Pharaoh, and said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Is this a foreshadowing of the person and work of Christ? Do you see it? Have you ever seen that? If you don't see it, see it. And again, use this as an example to when you read the Old Testament and the events of God and the activities of His people and what God is doing and so on and how they're relating to one another and what's going on. See them within the light of the fulfillment of all of this in Christ. What verse did I just quote? All of this is fulfilled in Christ. What verse did I quote? Colossians 2.17. Christ is the substance or the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Colossians 2.17 can be put over the Old Testament. Everything you read in the Old Testament from beginning to end is fulfilled 
in Christ is about Christ. Why? Because in Christ is the revelation and the glory of the Trinity revealed. What happened when Jesus ascended into heaven? I just have a couple of verses here. We could, we could spend all day doing this. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification of sins. Remember we talked about purgation, what? Forgiveness, payment, and then purification. This is the purification statement. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Just as a quick example, all of you may know enough about England and all that and the queen and the queen sitting on the throne. And when anybody, anybody comes before the queen, you don't come in and sit down. And it's like, oh, my heavens, you don't do that. Because you see, the posture of sitting means equality. And then when you leave the queen's presence, you leave facing her. You don't turn your back. Now, if you don't do that on an earthly king and queen, why does Jesus sit? Having completed the work, God accepts him as equal equal. Hebrews 10, 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, there's your purgation. He sat down to the right hand of God. And then in Revelation 21, 3, 21, look at Jesus says about himself, I sat down with my father on his throne. So now from the throne of God, Christ will exercise his royal authority, king, prophet, priest over all creation. And next week we'll start talking, I think, actually about the lordship, the kingship of Christ. Amen. Good to see you.